Good morning, and welcome to Help Community Church. It's a joy to be with you on this beautiful, sunny, though chilly, Easter morning. Those of you joining us online, welcome as well. I want to thank uh, Matt for bringing the message on Good Friday. Uh, the Lord blessed us with his willingness to serve the body here. I also want to thank him for his eagerness to come up a little early to do the announcements and prayer. I appreciate his enthusiasm with the task. We are taking a break uh, from 2 Kings today to remind ourselves the main reason we gather weekly and why we look forward to each and every Sunday throughout the year. In doing so, our service this morning has a special focus on worship. As you might have noticed, we did an extra song at the start, as Matt eloquently pointed out with his actions. And we'll do a song at the end of this message as a song of response and worship prior to us uh, partaking in communion. I want us to look at Revelation chapter 5 and consider why Jesus is worthy of our worship. And as we do so, we ought to consider if we are giving him the true and faithful worship that he is owed. Before we begin, let's go to our Father in heaven in prayer. Holy Father, we come before you on this holy day seeking your wisdom, seeking your mercy and grace. We come on the merit of the blood of your Son. We thank you that we can come into your presence as sinners who have been washed, who have been redeemed, and that we can seek wisdom when we lack it. And Father, we do lack it. So help us to hear your voice this morning. Help us to be edified. Help us to be sanctified. Help us to be encouraged as well to do the work that you have given us. Father, we ask these things for your glory by the power of the Spirit. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. If you have not done so already, please go ahead and open to Revelation uh, five. Uh, there are Bibles around. Uh, our main passage does not get put on the screen, but every verse uh, that I read outside of the main passage will be on the screen, so be sure to have it open so you can uh, follow along if it helps you. Uh, let me give you the context as you turn to Revelation chapter 5. Remember, this is the book of Revelation, singular, not Revelations. It's one Revelation and it's written by John. He was, it was, it's a vision that he has received, and he has written it down in this book for us. The book starts with the seven letters from Jesus to the seven churches. Then following the seven letters, in chapter 4, John is then taken up to the throne room of heaven to be shown the events of the future. There he sees the Father on the throne, and he witnesses those in heaven praising and worshiping the Father upon the throne. Then in Revelation 5, our text, the scene shifts to a scroll that's being held by God. So let's begin with that verse, for just verse 1 of chapter 5. Then I, that's John, saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Now the one who is seated on the throne is God the Father, uh, as the previous chapter makes clear. And in his right hand is a scroll. It has writing on the front and back, so it's overflowing with important information as both sides of the papyrus are used. And the significance of this information is further highlighted as the scroll itself is sealed with seven seals, not just one, but seven. These seven seals represent the full authority of heaven and of God being bound upon this book. This imagery here calls to mind three other instances in Old Testament prophecy that speak of scrolls. 
Uh, specifically, the first being Ezekiel 2, 9 and 10, where we see a scroll with writing on the front and back that contained lament, mourning, and woes. However, that scroll is not sealed. That scroll is actually read, hence why we know what the scroll is about. The second scroll is found in Daniel 12, 4, where that scroll is sealed up, and it is sealed up for the end of days. The third is in Isaiah 29, 11, where Isaiah mentions a prophetic scroll that has been sealed. Now, there's much debate on which of these scrolls, uh, the scroll in the right hand of the Father is, though the majority of the evidence points to Daniel's scroll being the scroll at the very least. What's important for us, though, this morning, in our immediate context of Revelation, is to understand that this scroll contains the will of God, the revelation of God in regard to the consummation of creation and redemptive history. If this scroll reveals the will of God for the, day, for the end of days, then it must be opened in order to bring about the restoration of all things. And that is what brings us to the question of verse 2. So let's go on and read verses 2 through 4. I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. So here we have an unnamed angel, a mighty angel, and asks a most important question. Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one, no one is found worthy. So here we have a moment of tension, a moment of eternal concern occurring in the mind of John as he witnesses this. This is why he weeps. If the scroll cannot be opened, then God's will cannot be made known. It cannot be manifested. Creation cannot be ultimately redeemed. And for a moment in John's vision, he's under the impression that no one is found worthy. No one at all to open the scroll. Mother Mary, Mother Teresa, the Pope, you, me, Adam, Eve, not worthy. The Apostle Paul, not worthy. The Apostle John, the self-described beloved disciple of Jesus Christ, not worthy. And John, he weeps loudly at this realization. And perhaps he weeps for also thinking for a mere moment, at least for a small moment, thinking that his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, whom he saw crucified, whom he saw raised from the dead, the one who gave him this vision, he also is not found worthy. But as we read on, we find that is not the case. Verses 5 through 7. One of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns, with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. I love those words. Weep no more. Look, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. The lion of Judah phrase here is a reference and a fulfillment of Genesis 49, verses 9 through 10, where we have Jacob or Israel. He's blessing the, his sons, uh, specifically the tribes of Israel. And when he blesses Judah, he blesses Judah this way. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. 
he stooped down, he crouched as a lion, as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And the root of David is an allusion to Isaiah 11, verse 1, which Paul references in Romans 15, 12. Isaiah writes in 11, chapter 11, verse 1, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the conquering, of course, is a reference to the death Jesus suffered on the cross, which is made evident by the immediate context, especially verse 6. As John, as he's being comforted by the elder, and he looks on, in the vision he sees the lamb, the lion of Judah, who looks as one who had been slain. That is, one who had been mortally wounded. And when you're mortally wounded, that means you die. And that's what this lamb looked like. He looked like as one who was slain. Like, he died, but yet here he is standing. What we have here is a picture of the crucifixion and the resurrection. For the lamb had died, but yet here he stands. And this is the joy of Easter. Though he was slain, yet he lives. We need to understand that the effects of the resurrection was not restricted to inspiring a small group of men to bold acts 2,000 years ago. No, the effects of the resurrection have and will always echo into eternity to the glory and praise of God. The seven horns represent the Lamb's total, complete, and perfect power. Seven eyes represent his perfect wisdom and insight, which act as spirits carrying the mission of the Lamb to all the earth. The Lamb, of course, is Jesus. And John, he's the only New Testament writer who explicitly uses this title for Jesus, the Lamb of God, in his writings. Uh, We first see it in the first chapter of the Gospel of John, when John the Baptist, as John quotes John the Baptist, John the Baptist says, Look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And it is the Lamb of God who is found worthy. And thus he approaches his father's throne. He takes the scroll. Upon this act, John's vision shifts to focus on new worship. It's almost as if with each each new movement, his vision expands and grows. And so new worship has begun. And in this new worship, we learn of why Jesus is worthy. So let's read uh, verse 8 through the end of the chapter, through verse 14. And then we will break it down. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne, living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. 
And the four living creatures said amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. Let's break this down by looking at the first hymn that is sung in verses 9 and 10. We have the four living creatures, and it's debated exactly what these four living creatures are. At the very least, they are some sort of high order of angelic beings. And we have the 24 elders along with them. They all fall down before the Lamb, and with harps and golden bowls full of the saints' prayers. And when we talk about saints' prayers, we're not talking about special people who have done miracles. We're talking about you and I, we who have been redeemed, washed by the blood of the Lamb. We are the saints. We who place our faith and trust in Christ, we are the saints. You don't need to do a miracle. You don't need the church to say, hey, you're a saint. No, if you believe and you trust in Jesus Christ, you are a saint. You are a righteous one by the works of Christ. And so our prayers are before them. They're in these golden bowls. And they sing a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. And then they go on to state why the Lamb is worthy. They say, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed a people for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. The first reason given here in verses 9 and 10 for the Lamb, for Jesus being worthy, is the cross. It is the blood that he shed to purchase for God a people who are made into a kingdom who are also priests, that is, they serve God. And as redeemed people of God will be given authority to reign on the earth. This is penal substitutionary atonement, which so many of the church today reject or they just refuse to talk about because they don't, for whatever reason, they don't like to talk about the blood of our Lord and Savior. Penal substitution atonement is that Jesus, the Son of God, upon the cross, suffered the wrath of God in our place for our sin. But if there is no wrath, if there is no judgment, and that's what we mean by the wrath of God, right? We're not talking about vindictive anger. We're talking about the justice of God being meted out. If there is no wrath, no judgment, then justice is not satisfied. And our offense remains, and we have been made into nothing. We need to understand that God, being perfectly holy, being perfectly just, being perfectly loving and merciful, if God wants to have a relationship with us, we cannot remain the way that we are. He cannot love us as we are, as we are born, or else he would do so. And he would not write verses that speak about how he hates lovers of iniquity. And he would never have sent his son to die on the cross if he could love us that way. But he can't love us as we are because he is holy and righteous and we are unholy and sinful. Therefore, we cannot be in his presence lest we are made clean. What is unclean cannot enter into the presence of he who is perfectly clean and perfectly holy. God cannot tolerate us on any level as long as we remain in sin. He is perfect. And the only thing that constrains the action, the will of God, is himself, is his nature. He cannot act in a way that would make him imperfect in any manner. Therefore, in accordance with his perfect, holy, just, righteous, and loving nature, God the Father sent his Son to be our propitiation, our atoning sacrifice in our place. 
Jesus didn't die on the cross simply to, or wrongly actually, to believe that he didn't die just to protect us from an angry, vindictive God. He died to serve and satisfy the justice of a holy, righteous God in our place. And he does so because he loves us. And the Father does this to his own Son because the Father loves us. See, the Father wants to love us. He wants to have a relationship with us, but he can't as long as we remain in sin. Thus, he sent his Son. The cross is not the image of a caring Son who takes punches in our place from an abusive Father. No, it's an image of a loving God who is willing to endure the unthinkable for the unholy so that God's people may know their God and that they may live with him forever. If we deny this truth, that this happened, then there is no Good Friday. There is no joy to be had on this Easter for our sins are still yet to be paid for. The debt has not been paid. But the lamb, who was without sin, without stain or blemish, having been slain for our sin, having drank the wrath of God's perfect love and justice, has been able to make us into a kingdom and into priests. The kingdom we are purchased into is currently existing, and we are currently priests. We need to understand here, and the only future tense that we see here in verse 10 relates to us reigning on the earth. They shall reign on the earth. The other two are past, made into the kingdom and priests. This is the fulfillment of God's promise given to his people back way back in Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6. God on Mount Sinai talking to Moses and his people says, therefore, if you will indeed obey, and notice this is conditional, right? He says, if you obey my voice, and keep my covenants. You shall, right, or you will be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall, you will, so future, be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This task, this promise that God gives him is, is conditional, and it's an impossible one. See, the, all the Old Testament points to the need for Christ. All the Old Testament, God says, if you do these things, you will be my people, but you're not going to be able to. I'll give you everything that you need, but in your own power, in your own spirit, in your own nature, you cannot do this. The old covenant is not sufficient. Your way cannot do it. Even when I give you all the help that I can possibly give you, it's not going to be enough. Thus, a new covenant must happen. Thus, I must send my son, and he will do it. This fulfillment of Exodus 19, 5 and 6 does not happen in our text in Revelation 5. John is referencing it, but the actual fulfillment of it does not happen in, in Revelation 5. It happens with the establishment of the church by the blood of Christ. When he shed his blood upon the cross and ushered in the new covenant, that is when this was fulfilled. When we were given new hearts, when we were born again, when we were made into a new creation, when the Spirit dwelt within us, this is when it happened. John brings this point up at the start of his book here in Revelation when he greets the seven churches. In Revelation 1, verse 5 and 6, he says, From Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins, how? By his blood, and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This reality means two things for us today. First, that right now, by the blood of the Lamb, you are part of a kingdom that will never end. You are a citizen of an everlasting kingdom that will stand regardless of what occurs in this world, 
and regardless of what happens to this world. America, as great of a nation you might think it is, one day will fail, like utterly and completely fail. But while we enjoy the blessings of American freedom, we do not belong to this nation. This is not our home. We are called to be good citizens. We're called to bless where we live, where we reside in this age, but this is not our home. We belong to a greater home, a greater nation, a greater kingdom, one that is eternal and one that will not ever fail. Second, this kingdom that Jesus purchased with his blood for God is just that. It's a kingdom, a collective group of individuals who serve, love, and live with one another. Jesus has not purchased silos that live and operate on their own. You cannot faithfully claim to be part of the kingdom while willingly living and acting out your faith on your own, thinking it's just me and Jesus. If it's just you and Jesus, you don't know Jesus, because in order to know Jesus, you have to know his bride. You have to be part of the body. You have to be part of the body of which he is the head. And if you're not part of that body, actively part of that body, we're not talking spiritually, that's Gnosticism, right? We're talking about a physical presence in the body of Christ. You cannot know him. So you're either part of the body or you are not. You are either in the one true vine, or you are not. In regard to us being made priests, that signifies our role, our responsibility, our function. That not only are we made into a kingdom, but we are made to serve and worship God. Before we couldn't do it rightfully, faithfully, but now we can. And we do that now, not later. Thus we seek to obey all the commands of Jesus. We seek to worship God rightly and faithfully as he has commanded us to do. Not as the world thinks we should do or not how we think we can best do it to reach the world, but as he has commanded us to do. The kingdom is an interpersonal, relational reality, not just with the triune God, but with others, and especially so in this age, for it is others, it's our brothers and sisters in Christ, who will help us become more like Christ as we serve one another, as we love one another, as we forgive one another for the hurt and harm that we have caused each other, as we lay down our preferences out of love for one another's sake. And we do all of this for the glory of God. And we remind ourselves of this truth as we gather together on the regular basis, on the weekly basis, and as we partake of the sacraments of baptism and communion as one body and one faith. And, and don't play the card, well, this sounds like legalism. It's not. It's faithfulness. It's obedience. Citizens of the kingdom act this way. Those who don't act this way are not citizens of the kingdom. Those who are made new in Christ live this way. Those who aren't, don't. This isn't how you get into the kingdom. This is what happens when you get citizenship. When you are given a passport, when you're granted citizenship into this kingdom, you get new power. You get a new spirit. You're made anew. You get a new name. You're no longer what you were. You're now righteous, redeemed, and holy. Note that the work of Christ upon the cross is wholly and fully sufficient for the task. His sacrifice in light of his life of perfect obedience is truly all perfect and satisfying for our sins. If it wasn't, Christ would not have been raised. He would not have been able to say upon the cross, it is finished. And then in the new psalm here that we see in Revelation 5, they would not be able to sing that it was by his blood that he purchased a people for God. 
And praise God, praise Jesus, that it is finished. Praise God, there is no purgatory. There is no need for indulgences. There's no need for a pope to approve of your salvation. There's no need for the sacraments as it relates to our salvation. There is no need for us to do anything but to look to the Lamb of God for our salvation, to place our faith in him and him alone. The text doesn't say that Jesus, uh, by his blood, co-signed alone, and we must pay a portion to finalize it. It doesn't say, praise, praise the Lamb who made a way, who cleared the path, and we must do the rest. It doesn't say he ransomed only a part of us or only covered certain sins in our lives. Maybe Jesus died for all the sins that we committed prior to coming to faith, but not the ones after, thus we need to do more work. Or maybe there are some sins that the blood of the Son of God just does not cover. No. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. The redemptive work is done. This is why we can rest in him. Because we don't need to do anything to earn his grace or favor. We just need to trust in him. He did all of it by his blood. This truth then leads to John's vision expanding even more so. The scene of worship expands to the myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands of angels saying the words of verse 12. And note this. They say this loudly. They're not doing this quietly. They're saying this loudly. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. Again, notice the focus. It's on the blood of Christ. It's on the suffering of the cross. Worthy is him to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. In other words, he's worthy of all good things. This saying has already been spoken in Revelation in chapter 4 and verse 11. There they say, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and you and were created. And to whom was that spoken? God. God the Father. And if God alone is deserving of worship, and now they're the angels who know this, that God alone is deserving of worship, and they're worshiping Jesus, the Lamb, what does that make Jesus? God. So here we have one of the many evidences, one of the many instances of the triune nature of God, that is the three persons, one God, being on display in the New Testament, well before any council met to discuss or to debate on the issue. In chapter 4, they praise God the Father for his creative work. Here in chapter 5, they praise God the Son for his redemptive work. The chapter then closes out with more noise. This scene... As truth gets proclaimed, as truth is witnessed more and more, this scene of worship just gets louder and louder and louder as the worship grows and grows. This is a far cry from how many churches do worship today, where they try to focus on personalizing the experience. This is not a dark scene. The lights are on in heaven, right? John can see all the angels, right? It's not, he, he's not just simply hearing the angels. He's seeing the angels, Jesus didn't turn the lights off before they worshipped him. Right? Hey, let's get the lights before we, we do this so we can have our own personal... No, this is, this is a corporate, this is a co cosmic worship experience. We do this together as one body, as, as one voice. Let us not be afraid to shout and clap. And by clapping, I'm not talking about simply like the rhythmic clapping that can be awkward I'm talking about like when you're singing a hymn, a song, and there's some deep truth that strikes you, like Jesus is alive, or he raised from the grave, or whatever it is, and you're just like, yes, 
and you say it and you can just clap and you pump your fist or you give out a war whoop, whatever it may be. Like, let it out. It's okay. It's okay to be loud. Don't give in to disorder, right? Here, there's a lot of noise, but it's all in order. And it's all in praise to the Father and to the Son. So let it out. I know many in America today have abused emotions. They have used emotions in the church to manipulate people. They have used emotions to guide their faith. And that's wrong. But we also need to make sure that we're not responding too far the other way and think our faith is emotionless. Because it is not. Our emotions are like the soil of our soul. If we want the word of God to take root and produce fruits, we must allow the soil, our emotions, to be renewed and conditioned by the truth of the gospel. So don't be afraid to get emotional. Just make sure it's being guided by truth. In the final two verses, we see John hearing every, every creature, every single creature in all of creation, animals, humans, believers, and non-believers, all saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, so to the Father, as well as to the Son, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. That means now and always. And the four living creatures, they close it out by saying amen. The elders fall down and they continue their worship. This alludes to Paul, what he writes in Philippians 2. Philippians 2 is explaining the reason for the incarnation. In verses 8 through 11, he says, In being found in human form, he, Jesus, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It's the slain of the lamb there. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. So when he's talking about the exaltation of Christ, he's talking about the resurrection of Christ. He's talking about the ascension of Christ, which could not happen if Jesus was not the Son of God, if he did not live a perfect life, if he was not sinless, and did not take on the full wrath of God. Because he, because he paid, our, paid for our sins and he suffered the justice, the Father and his perfect justice had to raise him. And he raises him, he exalts him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That's just a, a, a Jewish way of saying everywhere in all of creation. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If this is the worship that is ascribed to Christ in heaven, how do you think this impacts how we view Sunday gatherings? If we, if the, excuse me, if the worship here in John's vision focuses on the blood of the Lamb, focused on Christ crucified, what then should our Sundays be focused on? Morality? TED Talks? Politics? How to be a good American citizen and voter? Or should it be focused on the Lamb who stands, though he has been slain? Do you think worshiping Christ faithfully involves gathering his people once, once a month, or for some of you, once or twice a year? Do you think that the Sunday gathering is something you do or partake in as you have time? That is, does the worship you offer the Lamb come from leftovers? Whatever time, energy, or money you have left after your other priorities at the end of the week, well, then you offer that to the Lamb. You offer that to the Lamb who had been slain. Do you think that equals to Him be power, wealth, wisdom, might, 
honor, glory, and blessing forever and ever. Let us then not be slack in our duties. Let us not be slack in our faithfulness. We are not mere broken people who are sinners. Right? We hear that term, oh, well, we're broken. Well, we're all sinners. And it's true, we're all sinners. But we must not use it as an excuse. Well, we're all just broken. We're just lazy. This is how we are. No, it's not. It's how you are if you're not born again. But if you're born again, you're a sinner who has been washed by the blood of the Lamb. You are redeemed. You have a a spirit of of power and self-control, not one of fear and timidity. You can no longer say, this is just how I am. No, you are how Christ is. Live it. Act like it. Struggle. Strive for it in the power of God because he will be faithful in it. You've been washed by the blood of the Lamb, thus you've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. So you can't mess it up. Right? If you're overwhelmed by the task in front of you, which is reasonable, just give it to Christ because he has sealed it with his Spirit. You are sealed. You can't mess it up. Keep your faith and trust in Christ and you will be fine. You will forever remain part of his eternal, everlasting kingdom which he has made by his blood, not by your works. Thus, we are also part of a royal priesthood, so we seek to serve God. Thus, do not allow fear, nor risk for one's health or life keep you from being faithful first to God and then faithful to one another. Let us continue to gather together as we encourage one another all the more with love and good deeds as the day of the Lord draws near, whether that be the day he returns or the day he calls us home. And no one here knows when that day will be. Let us worship him in all we do, but especially on Sundays, the Lord's Day, as we celebrate the resurrection each and every week. We do this weekly as a body, and we do it daily as we live it out individually, never truly apart from the body, but always a part of the body, wherever the Lord takes us. Let me close with these words from an ancient brother in Christ, Gregory of Nazianzus from the 4th century. These words essentially sum up the main applications that you'll find in the whole of the New Testament. He writes, Let us offer ourselves the possession most precious to God and most fitting. Let us give back to the image what is made after the image. Let us recognize our dignity. Let us honor our archetype. Let us know the power of the mystery and for what Christ died. Let us become like Christ since Christ became like us. Let us become gods for his sake since he for ours became man. He assumed the worst that he might give us the better. He became poor that we through his poverty might be rich. He took upon himself the form of a servant that we might receive back our liberty. He came down that we might be exalted. He was tempted that we might conquer. He was dishonored that he might glorify us. He died that he might save us. He ascended that he might draw to himself us who were lying low in the fall of sin. Let us give all, offer all to him who gave himself a ransom and a reconciliation for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word that you have given to John to be passed on to us. We thank you that we can glimpse into the heavens and we can see this scene unfold. We know words can't do it true justice, Father. But we thank you that in some way, in some capacity, we can understand it. And we ask by the power of the Spirit that you would help us in this, that you would help us bend our souls to your will, to your glory, that we would give you the due worship, 
that is due to you and to your Son and to the Spirit. Father, I ask that you would search each and every one of our hearts here this morning, that if we don't know your Son, if we don't know you the way that you call us to do it, to know you, that you would remove the scale from our eyes, that you would turn our hearts of stone to flesh, that you would help us to see and know the truth, that if we lack faith, if we have doubt, if we're struggling to believe, that you would give us the confidence of faith that we need. Help us to trust in you in all things, to trust in your Son in all things, by the power of the Spirit. Father, we thank you that you are merciful and gracious. We thank you that you, in despite of our sins, you are still faithful. Help us to repent of our sins. Help us to confess them. As we come to the table this morning, we ask that you would bless the, the cup and the bread, that they would be the gifts of grace that they are, that they would remind us of the work that your Son has accomplished on the cross, that they would also remind us that your Son is risen from the grave, the tomb is empty, that he has ascended, that he's, in, he's at your right hand right now, interceding on our behalf. And one day, Father, you are going to send him back in the fullness of his glory. And when he returns, you will judge the righteous and the unrighteous. So help us to live in holiness and in faithfulness that you call us to be. Help us to know your word. Help us to abide in your word as acts of love and devotion towards you so that you and your son can continue to manifest yourselves to us in the spirit as we are filled with the spirit, as we walk in the spirit. Father, we thank you for all these things and we ask that of all the needs and all the wants in this world that you would be glorified. And that in your glory, you would remember us as you look to the blood of your Son and you see our justification rooted in him and what he has done. We thank you for your great love. We thank you for your perfect justice and holiness. Help us to understand when we don't. Help us to glorify you when we get lazy, when we get tired, when we struggle to understand why. Help us to put our faith in all things in your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, we ask this for your glory by the power of the Holy Spirit and in the name and the blood of the Lamb who was slain, Jesus Christ. Amen. So at this time, uh, we're going to go into a, a song of response and in worship. Uh, so the praise team is going to come on up. They're going to lead us in that. Um, as, we, uh, as soon as that song is over, uh, myself and Matt will be at one of the tables. We'll go into communion. Before you come up for communion, uh, take a moment to uh, pray, confess your sins uh, to the Father. Uh, if you are a believer who is not walking in unrepentant sin, you are welcome to come to the table. And regardless of what sins you've committed this week, if you have put your faith and trust in Christ, confess it, confess your sin, come to the table with joy, knowing that you can by the blood of the Lamb. And then after you take the elements, take it back to your seats, consume it, and then we'll close out with a couple more songs of praise. So we're gonna, I'm gonna have you stand if you're able. And I'm gonna sing, if you'll see on the, the words, I'm gonna sing what's in the parentheses for the verses. And then you're gonna sing the response, okay? Like we did last time, I don't know if you remember that, but um, so I'll sing the parentheses, you'll sing the response, okay? So we'll go, we'll go through this. Is he worthy? Do you feel the world is broken? We do. 
Do you feel the shadows deepen? We do. Do you know that all the dark will stop the light from getting through? We do. Do you wish that you could see it all made All creation groaning is a new creation coming. It's the glory of the Lord to be the light within our midst. It's a good that we remind ourselves of. Thank you. 